Hello and welcome to today's episode of Is That Science? This week, in continuing to look at the history of medicine, I want to talk about an incredibly, shall we say, infamous figure in that history, Dr. Sigmund Freud. And who better to talk about that with than with my father, who is incidentally a psychiatrist of nearly 40 years. Because of my keen interest in the history of medicine, we've always had this common interest in the development of psychiatry. This episode really came out of a recent discussion we had about Freud and the popular culture, specifically literature. And so that was our guiding principle for today. To what extent can we still consider Freud a scientist? Also, just a fair warning at advance, my microphone in this podcast seemed to pick up a lot of peaks in my audio, so I do apologise in advance. Hi, Dad, and welcome to Is That Science? Well, thank you for inviting me, Susan. So we've talked a lot about Freud together, but I've never really asked you, why Why are you interested in Freud? What drew you to him initially? Well, as you know, my father was a, a surgeon, but he was also a man of extraordinary culture. And when I was about 12 or 13, I became fascinated in the work of Carl Jung and started to talk a lot to my father about Carl Jung, who gave me a copy of the then definitive biography of Freud, which was written by Ernest Jones. And this is a an extraordinary, compelling account of a scientific and cultural hero written by his major disciple, which of course is now incredibly discredited. But at the time, it's elegantly written, it's just enchanting. And I became fascinated by Freud. And then I started reading Freud. And within a very short period of time, I was completely captured by the clarity of his writing and the way that he seems to explain a lot about being a human being in the 20th century. And because I'm a bit of a completist, I read as much Freud as I could, as many biographies as I could. As my graduation present, my father gave me Freud's collected works, the so-called standard edition, and he's remained one of my heroes, although as I've grown older, I've seen more of his warts and more of his problems, and that's been reflected by the incredible explosion in our, our understanding of Freud. It also led to my decision to become a psychiatrist, although Freud has got nothing to do really with contemporary psychiatry in Britain, or, or I would dare say in the rest of the world. He's, as you would probably point out, one of my dead white male heroes. You've always spoken about how he was really considered one of the greats in psychiatry and I, maybe even the medical field as a whole. At that time, was he kind of this untouchable figure? In Britain, he's never been a major influence on psychiatry, but he's always been outside Unlike, say, in France, where he represents a, a major philosophical strand in, in psychiatry. And, of course, in America, industrial psychiatry, both the private practice and actually in, in the large mental hospitals, up until the early 70s, he was a significant figure. You couldn't be, for instance, a professor of psychiatry in the United States unless you were a qualified psychoanalyst. And he had an enormous impact on American psychiatry, but he's never had the same respect in, in Britain. So we've talked a lot about Freud's influence on you and his influence in the broader culture as a whole, but who actually is he? So Freud was born in 1856, and he was born in a small provincial town in Moravia, which was at that time in the 
Czech part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Being Jewish in a predominantly Christian society was difficult. The family moved to Vienna, which was the capital of the empire at the time, when he was in his late childhood. And Freud essentially always lived in Vienna for the rest of his life. So Vienna in the latter part of the 19th century was the capital of a huge empire, was the most extraordinary cultural city. And as Freud grew older, he was living in the in the most intellectually vibrant society. And if you think about all the famous artists and writers and scientists who lived in Vienna, he was absolutely central to that. It was a massive feature of his life. He was from a very young age, very precocious at work and sailed through his gymnasium, that's the high school life. And never entirely clear from reading his autobiographical writings why he why he pursued a medical degree, and it's never been entirely understood. But he, even as a teenager, in one of his letters to his friends, he described himself as seeing himself as a conquistador, discovering and occupying land in the mind, although he couldn't quite decide what he was going to do. So he was enrolled at the University of Vienna as a medical student. The interesting thing about late 19th century Vienna is that it was even then a fiercely anti-Semitic city, and the role of being the victim of anti-Semitism played a very large part in Freud's identity, both as a person, but as a writer. And later on in his life, when he sought to become a full professor at the University of Vienna, there is no doubt that anti-Semitism played a large part in that Freud identified himself even then as being an outsider. He was very successful at university, but actually delayed his graduation to carry out anatomical research. And I think it was actually two years before he graduated, studying the sexual organs of eels in the university laboratory down in Trieste. And there is a certain irony in Sigmund Freud dissecting two or three hundred eels to discover the gonads of the males and females. But that's an aside. He qualified and then, after a rather circuitous route, took up a neurological training. And this is the most important turn in his life, that he started to study in the general hospital in Vienna, but found it relatively uncongenial. It was a very organic view of, of neurology. His Professor of Neurology Mayanert described the mind as being secreted by the brain, a bit like bile was secreted from the liver. And so Freud then, in the latter part of his attempted academic career, moved to Paris, where he fell under the influence of Jean Charcot, who was at that time the, the major European neurologist. And that's where he was sort of introduced to the idea that people could have neurological symptoms without a neurological cause. Schock is interesting because his major contributions to neurology were to look at the presentation of people with neurological disorders and then wait for them to die and dissect their brains. So he was, for instance, the man who found the anatomical lesions that led to multiple sclerosis. But in the latter part of his life, Jaco tried to look at the whole concept of hysteria and understand how people got all these seemingly very bizarre symptoms and then described a pattern of neurological symptoms. The major importance is that Freud admired Charcot throughout his life. 
Schoker was a very imposing figure and Napoleon of neurology. And he also translated into German Charcot's work. So when he returned from Paris, he set up as a neurologist in private practice, but was relatively unsuccessful. He was trying to attract patients and became, using his experience with Charcot, very interested in what was known as hysteria. That's the presentation of neurological symptoms predominantly without any organic disorder. And in 1895, he worked with a very eminent physiologist to produce a series of essays called Studies in Hysteria, which is where they looked at the meaning of the neurological symptoms. And furthermore, the fact that talking about people's experiences and how the symptoms emerged in their lives seemed to relieve the symptoms themselves. And the most famous one is Anna O, who was treated by his co-author Breuer, who described the talking cure. And so she had a whole variety of symptoms that couldn't have a medical explanation. And talking about them to Breuer triggered a relief. And therefore, they started to suggest that understanding the meaning of the symptoms and the symbolic value of the symptoms is helpful. The other interesting bit about the development of, of psychoanalysis is psychotherapy works by looking at the relationship between the patient and the person doing the therapy. And you resuscitate early relationships in your relationship with the therapist. And that would now be called the transference. And of course, the other bit that's important is that Freud also developed this trauma theory of hysteria and of actually all psychological disorders, which was that they were all the result of sexual activity in childhood. And so Freud came up with this trauma theory that everybody who presented with hysterical and neurotic symptoms had been a victim of some sort of early sexual experience. We would now see that as, as being abusive in, in Freud's words, but actually he, he wasn't making that judgment. And he, he pursued this theory. In his account again, he he suddenly realized that when he was doing his own psychoanalysis, he started to realize that what his patients and he were describing were actually sexual fantasies. And once he makes that judgment, then he starts to realize that the place of fantasy in the early development of the mind and in adult development does not accord with reality. And that's the beginning of psychoanalysis. There is a pessimistic core to Freud's writing, which becomes more apparent after the First World War. And actually, towards the end of his life, he didn't see psychoanalysis as a clinical discipline. He was very pessimistic. He thought it was a very important way of exploring the psyche, but he wasn't actually sure about whether it was a therapy. But one of his last papers is called Psychoanalysis Terminable and Interminable. Do you remain in analysis all your life? So I guess that that's really interesting because it kind of brings in the idea of is psychoanalysis merely a therapy or is it a cure? I think it's very easy to kind of see psychoanalysis now and psychotherapy as a route to a cure. But what you're saying is it's not really that. It was never really ever perceived as that. It was always a, a mode of introspection. It was never a clinical cure, was it? Well, I think we, we have to think a little bit about what medicine meant back in the early part of the 20th century. This is true. I'm probably looking back at it with a modern perspective about medicine yes, and I mean, it, what medicine means. Yeah, yeah. 
in Freud's early practice, he followed the model that neurologists would do at the time, which was taking history of detailed physical examination. And then because there was almost nothing that could treat. So it's much more exploratory instead of curative. Well, yes. I mean, in his early stages, it would mean seeing Freud for 50 minutes, charged for an hour, but 50 minutes, during which time the therapy would happen. That would happen five days a week. And it might happen for up to 18 months. That then developed into many years of five days a week, hourly sessions. And so it was an enormous investment by the patient in the treatment. For instance, the man known as the the wolf man, who is probably his most impressive case history, was in analysis on and off for 40 years. He also described it as the greatest tragedy of his life that he ever got involved with psychoanalysis. The therapy, therefore, was never going to be possible to be rolled out for the rest of human beings. It was a very middle-class, intensive therapy. And the other thing that was important was that after the war with the economic crisis that overtook Austria and Germany, Freud became incredibly dependent on his American patients because they paid him in dollars. And that's why Freudianism, as it was called, became such an important part of and certainly American culture. And so during his career, was he was he quite famous or was it towards the end of his career? I mean, we've got this, you've got this, you've given an outline of the development of a very interesting practice. Was were these ideas quite controversial at the time or were they were people interested? Was he was he quite famous at, towards the end of his career, or did it really pick up well, after the, he had died? He would say he was, to use your word earlier, infamous in the early part of his life. He talks about him being in 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 solitary splendor when he was doing all this work. However, there isn't a great deal of evidence he was ever ostracized, but he was very careful to organize himself into a school of therapy. And so he set up the Viennese Psychoanalytic Society very early in 1905-1906, which is where a group of fellow physicians would meet every Wednesday and discuss cases using Freud's, Freud's views. It's a slight problem that most of them were pretty marginal figures in Viennese medical society. And so he set up this, this school his biggest problem was that it was very fringe. I was particularly struck when you were talking about early influences on the development of Freud's practice, when you were talking about his time in Vienna, and you were talking about a lot of the cultural influences on his practice, as well as the scientific. The Vienna Freud was living in as an adult was a vibrant experimental city, and there are various aspects of, of Freud's daily life that made that sensible. For instance, the institution of the Viennese coffee shop, where you would literally go and drink a cup of coffee, meet friends, read a newspaper. And those friends might be people like Leon Trotsky, who lived in Vienna at the time. They might be great writers meeting every day. There was this melting pot. When I think of Freud and I think of psychotherapy, you seem to think of the two as as the same, basically. Freud invented psychotherapy, and, psych- and therefore psychoanalysis and psychotherapy are basically the same thing. Do you think that's true, or do you think that's a 
cultural misconception? I think it's it's a cultural trope. I, and I still have patients who come to see me both in the NHS and privately who wonder where the couch is. And, and you always joke about it, but there's that card that you once got given that was Lassie get help and it was Lassie on the couch. It was that image of yes. psychotherapy. The, first, is very the, top, the top half of it, top half of it was Lassie's family being swept, human family being swept away. And the second was Lassie lying on a couch with the man sitting at the far end. It, it, I mean, it's been dignified in various other ways, but it was the other thing is that early psychoanalysis came up with this extraordinary language, this extraordinary model. What I, what I said when I was talking about my own original impression was that you have a moment when you're reading Freud where it all makes extraordinary sense, that you can suddenly start to understand yourself. The philosopher Richard Volheim said that anybody with a modicum of psychological insight could generate their own psychoanalytic theories. And the reason why there's this jungle of psychoanalytic theories out there is because there's a, a fascination with the beauty of it. Freud's earliest attempt to generate a scientific psychology was a private document that he wrote called A Project for Scientific Psychology. And he describes in one of his letters, writing this document, and he suddenly had a flash that he could he could actually come up with a neurological model for the human mind. But then suddenly it went away. How do you think that psychotherapy and psychoanalysis became so intertwined in the public imagination of psychiatry? I mean, I still think about it when I think of psychiatry. I still think of psychoanalysis and Freud. How do you think the two became so deeply embedded with each other? Because I think it answers the, 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 the Cartesian dilemma. Can well, you explain what you mean by that? Descartes' idea that the mind and the physical world were separate and that only human beings had consciousness, I think, therefore I am. And that beyond the human mind, the rest of the of the universe ran as a bit of Newtonian mechanism. And we don't perceive ourselves as being anything other than a mind hovering or contacting in contact with the body. And Freud's models and, and some of his disciples' models run very smoothly. And then, of course, the other reason why is that the Freudian image of the mind is an incredibly dramatic theatrical work of art. You know, the Oedipus complex goes back to the play and people who develop psychology theory, the drama and the literature is important. And of course, the other thing is Freud was a very, very brilliant writer. He is served badly in one way in, in his English translation because his translation into English in the standard edition is trying to produce a scientific dry account all, all the words everyone knows about Freud, ego, superego, id, people who are a little bit more will know other other words. This, this Greco-Latin language that's used was deliberately constructed to make it acceptable to Anglo-Saxon science. The translations to French are apparently very much more liter literary. And he never won the Nobel Prize, although he was endlessly put up with it, but he did win the Goethe Prize, which is one of the great literary awards that Germany has. So I think it's a combination of things. And of course, in British culture, he arrived in the 1920s at the time of modernism and 
and and you know became the patron saint of the Bloomsbury Group. Leonard Wolf, Virginia Woolf's husband, ran the Hogarth Press that published Freud. Is that kind of where we begin to see Freud as like a cultural icon? I mean, he operates such a pivotal role in a lot of social criticism. I mean, there's an entire framework, psychoanalytic theory is entirely based off slightly diluted Freudian theories, social criticism that's based off of his ideas. And do you think that's where it came from then? The the literary establishment's kind of readiness to take up his ideas and introduce them into their own work. Well, the answer to that is in Auden's poem In Memoriam Sigmund Freud, which was published in 1939 in the weeks after Freud died. And he describes Freud as forming a climate of opinion. Auden highlights the fact that Freud invented a mythology for the 20th century. And it was published from 1939. Auden, after all, introduced the idea of the age of anxiety. And we can't, well, we can actually currently think about what 1939 might have felt like when we're on the edge of an abyss. And particularly Freud's later work and his cultural pessimism accorded to the 1930s, just as his idea of, you know, sexuality being the major, the major motive force for human creativity, uh, dominated the 20s. You know, he's, he's a skill ultimately, in, in his public image. If you look at the photographs, he's very good at producing the Freud that looked right at the time. So in his in the 1890s, he's you know a rather handsome young man, nicely trimmed beard, in fashionable clothes in the 1900s. He's in a frock coat, more carefully curated beard. And then as he gets older, he, he becomes more of a prophet figure. There's something very extraordinary about the way that the psychologic movement, and it's probably to do with the development of the media and of, of journalism, control the images of Freud. And that's why, to get back to where we started, something like the Ernest Jones uh, biography produced in the 1950s was at the height of this superhuman explorer of the, of the unconscious. And subsequently, we now have much more of his correspondence, much more memoirs, much more understanding, and a rather more three-dimensional figure appears in this superhuman scientist. Yeah, so and I think you know, I think that's one thing that I really that I really noticed by you is that I don't know Freud is kind of very much so kind of an icon to you, but not an, an icon in the sense of like you worship him, but very much so in someone that has stayed with you. You know, you've talked a lot about the complexity behind the mammoth figure of Freud in the broader culture as a whole. We seem to have this this supposed image of Freud taken from a few of his theories. What is one thing that you wish people would know about Freud? It's like a little bit like a huge number of historical figures. And I do wonder what Freud would make of his role in the culture. And I think he would have been incredibly dismissive. I think he would have seen it as vulgar and uncritical. And, and actually, in his revolutionary phase, that people weren't listening to what he had to say, but were more fascinated by the complexity of it. Rather boringly, I think that people should realise that he is a very great writer. I don't know that he's a great scientist, and he's a much funnier, and he's much more ironic, 
than people give give credit for. You know, compared with many contemporary writers and particularly three theorists, he's not particularly difficult in whatever language you read him in. So I think that's a pretty good note to end on. I think that he's a much better writer than people give him credit for and just encourage people to go and read him and actually digest his theories instead of taking them at face value from the wider culture. If I was asked to to recommend a place to start, if I was asked to 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 suggest a gateway book into to Freud, it would be the the introductory lectures in psychoanalysis, which were were literally what it says. They were his his professorial lectures at university, where he gives a, a fascinating account of his own development and a fascinating account of psychoanalysis before it became complex. And then if you like that book, the next one would be to go on to Totem and Taboo, which is his foray into anthropology of a certain historical time. But there you see his use of rhetoric. The best speaker in the Totem Taboo is the person who's doubtful about what Freud is saying and who gets persuaded as it goes on. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to that's a pretty good place to finish. Thank you so well, much you. for it's been good fun. It has. It has been very good fun. And we was <laughs> that was that was really good. So thank you. Thank you very, very much okay. for for talking to me. Thank you so much to my dad for coming in to talk about his keen area of interest. And as always, anything we talked about today will be in the show's notes. And if you don't already, please be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at That Science Pod with two S's. And make sure to tune in for Amelia's episode next week of What Science. Until next time.